It's a great pleasure to welcome you to this Mitchell Institute conversation, part of a podcast series created at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice here at Queen's University, Belfast. I'm Richard English, Director of the Institute, and it's a real pleasure today for me to welcome Dr. Cheryl Lawther as our scholarly guest. Dr. Lawther is Senior Lecturer in Law at Queen's University, Belfast, where she's also a Fellow of the Mitchell Institute. Her wide-ranging research expertise covers transitional justice, dealing with the past, issues of truth recovery, and matters relating to victims of conflict. Cheryl, it's good to have you here today. Can I start by asking you something about the first book I read, which had your extensive arguments within it, Cheryl Law, The Truth, Denial and Transition, Northern Ireland and the Contested Past, which was published by Routledge. Can you say something about that book, about its central argument, the material it it deals with and addresses? Certainly. Thank you very much, Richard. And it's a pleasure to be here today and to do this podcast. So the book Truth in Ireland Transition was published in 2014 by Routledge. And its main kind of genesis came from two related areas. First, I was working in the field of transitional justice and I was increasingly aware that there was a lot of attention to the reasons why we should do truth recovery in the aftermath of violent conflict. But there was considerably less attention to the reasons why a society as a whole or certain sectors and communities within a society might be opposed to dealing with the past. And what arguments did exist tended to focus on rather practical explanations for opposition to dealing with the past. So around the potential maybe for creating political instability, for causing sort of renewed violence and tensions within society. And the potential that, of course, is very real that you might re-traumatise individuals and communities. So I thought there was really a very big gap in our knowledge and in the scholarly literature about going further and really investigating what are the political, the sociological and the ideological oppositions to dealing with the past. Um, and at the same time, as I was sort of beginning to think through these ideas, it was in the aftermath of the report of the Consultative Group in the Past in 2009, chaired by Archbishop Rob Names and Dennis Bradley. And that was one of the most comprehensive attempts, I think, to really establish a framework for dealing with the legacy of the conflict in Northern Ireland. And that set of 31 proposals had fallen apart on the basis of one proposal for a recognition payment. And I realised that it was primarily members of the pro-state, unionist, Protestant, loyalist and security force community in Northern Ireland who were most publicly anyway, opposed to dealing with the past. But yet we knew actually very little about what really were the objections beyond the headlines, what were the concerns about doing truth recovery from a pro-state perspective. So the two areas effectively came together um, and are represented in the arguments contained in the book. And could you say something, Cheryl, about some of the findings you reached in terms of why the pro-state, the unionist community, has been more hesitant about engaging with some of these issues around truth recovery? There are those issues that are very real, as I mentioned, as, and as you would expect in any society, about the potential maybe for political instability or that individuals might sort of resuffer trauma again. But more substantively, I think there is the argument about the connection to the state um, and that sense that they are loyal to the state and the security forces sacrificed in the name of the state. And what does it do to your identity and your sense of meaning and your sense of belonging in Northern Ireland as part of the United Kingdom? If you start interrogating the actions of that state and you start interrogating and critically questioning how you sit in relation to the British state, 
debate. So there's arguments there around the allocation of blame and the allocation of responsibility. And of course, the unionist preferred narrative of the conflict is one in which the vast majority, if not all, responsibility for the conflict is placed within the Republican movement. And that ties into a number of interlinked arguments. So around a very polarised conception of victimhood, that the unionist community and particularly the security forces are innocent victims of the conflict and should sit at the top of a hierarchy of victimhood, that dealing with the past would rewrite the past in a way that is designed to blame the state and the security forces. Um, and then that would be interpreted as a fundamental betrayal of their sacrifice and service. So it's around those key notions of blame, victimhood, loyalty, sacrifice and potential for rewriting the past that casts the state and the security forces in a negative light. Thanks very much. You're, you're working in Belfast and you're working on themes which though they have, as you've eloquently said there, a very distinctive Northern Irish aspect to them. These are all themes which have a global dimension in other conflicts. There are questions around transitional justice, around dealing with the past, around victims and so forth. Can you say something about the specificities of working on this kind of intellectual area in Belfast in Northern Ireland, both in terms of some of the advantages, but maybe also some of the disadvantages compared to other places where you might be engaging in your scholarship? I think perhaps one of the disadvantages, if I can start with the perhaps negative or perceived negative in the first hand, is Northern Ireland is uh, heavily re- research place and sometimes I think there is actually a misplaced perception that oh it's Northern Ireland again and here's another book or another piece of research on Northern Ireland but I actually would argue the opposite that Northern Ireland is a very lively and enriching place for doing this kind of work and I think that's on a number of different dimensions Uh, Northern Ireland of course is a transitional society but it's not the typical transitional society in the sense of having a clean break from the past. Uh, There are still obviously elements of sort of the previous political regime, previous members of the police, members of the criminal justice system etc in positions of power and influence. Northern Ireland is not a new state, it has a new political agreement but it is not a new state and it is also a conflict that occurred in what was a liberal democracy. So there's and there are some elements of the peace process and the transit process of transitional justice that are fundamentally unresolved. So I think actually studying these issues around peace and around justice and around meanings of accountability actually have an added sharpness and an added sort of intellectual twist to them in a society in Northern Ireland that has allowed those of us who work on these areas here to be able to transport some of those lessons uh, to other jurisdictions. And you say it's a lively and enriching place to study these things and I think your work is testament to that. It's also a place clearly where the daily news and the political contestation shows how sharp-edged and ongoing some of these issues are. At the moment, as we speak, there's been considerable controversy about the UK government's attempts to deal with the legacies of the Northern Ireland conflict. Could you say something about your reading of where we are now in terms of those initiatives, responses to them and possible ways forward? For sure. And and that's a big question in respect to possible ways forward. I have a number of different ways in in responding to that question. And the first thing that I really think is really important to stress is that these conversations on dealing with the past have been going on since probably at least formally 2006 with the report of Healing Through Remembering and then on to the consultative group in the past, Stormont House Agreement, Hassan O'Sullivan, Stormont House Agreement, Fresh Start and then the command paper. And over all of that period of time, 
victims and survivors' hopes and expectations are being raised at each juncture. And that's often it's people that are waiting 40 years plus for some modicum of information that they're looking for. And every time their expectations rise and then they're crushed again. And that is incredibly unfair on people who have already suffered so much. And that's also an ageing population. Um, And with any of us, as we age, our needs increase. And whether that is the need for some measure of financial compensation or help with physical and mental health services, that's not happening, but people's needs are increasing over that period of time. And I think that is extremely unjust and if not inhumane. The other thing that I think is worth flagging up is if you printed out all of those reports and you put them on the table in front of you, every time the reports um, and the pieces of le- draft legislation, they get smaller and smaller. So you're starting with the consultative group in the past on something like 130 pages. And now you're down to like a very slim two pages. So the level of detail and perhaps arguably the level of commitment is being whittled out over that period of time, as is, as you can see recently with the a new draft legislation that stemmed from the command paper in July 2021, the level of openness and transparency on the part of the British state to actually fully commit to doing a full process of truth recovery is ever decreasing. So in terms of uh, where this goes from here, I think there will be significant, it's very difficult to say, but I think there will be significant legal challenges to that legislation. Certainly in the days before uh, the, legis- the draft legislation was read for the second time, I think, in the House of Commons. There was something like over 70 submissions for um, civil actions and inquests. So there is a real need for truth recovery and people are using whatever vehicle is available to them before those vehicles through the criminal justice system, but also elsewhere, are closed down. And I think within that, one of the things we need to be very wary of is as the government is closing down the avenue for using the criminal justice system, which is a very imperfect mechanism for dealing with the past anyway, it is simultaneously elevating the importance of oral history and to to some extent, some degree of memorialisation or the involvement of the museum and heritage sector. But I think we need to be very careful that that is not an elevation of oral history as a way to obscure a proper independent investigation into the facts of the past. So the way you're describing it there is fundamentally rather gloomy. That's a, that's a pessimistic yes. reading of where we are. Is, is, is that, would that be an accurate characterization of your expert view at the moment? That's a very accurate representation of my view, yes. Okay, thanks very much. Uh, so I started by asking you about your, your first book, Truth, Denial and Transition. Could I ask you now, Cheryl, about current and future research projects, where is your next set of uh, research findings going to lead us? Okay, so that's um, sort of interlinked, but also building on Tristan Island transition. So at the moment, um, I'm very grateful for funding from the Fulbright Commission and the British Academy. I'm working on a new monograph uh, called Beyond Innocence and Guilt, Constructing Victimhood in Transitional Justice. And again, that the arguments in that book stem from extensive fieldwork in Northern Ireland, with victims and survivors right across the political spectrum and individuals who have been victims of the state, victims of uh, loyalist paramilitaries and Republican paramilitaries, and indeed victims of armed organisations within their own communities. And the argument, the central objective of that book is to go beyond innocence and guilt in our understanding of victimhood. And if we look internationally, 
less so in Northern Ireland. There are there's been considerable progress over the last number of years about using a more nuanced or more complex understanding of victimhood. So you'll often hear the term the complex victim. And that is in recognition that to define victims or survivors as innocent or guilty really doesn't mesh with the complex reality of conflict. You know, any one of us can move through different stages of innocence and guilt in any one day. Um, and we put that in the context of conflict where someone may be uh, a victim, but simultaneously active in conflict or maybe active in conflict and victimised by the own, their armed group to which they are affiliated with, those boundaries become even more murky. So there has been that trajectory of recognising the complex victim. But to my mind, and based on work done here in Northern Ireland, but also in particular in Colombia, and to some extent in Cambodia as well, that doesn't really adequately capture the true complexity of victimhood. So this book is designed to push the boundaries of what we understand victimhood to be and how victimhood is constructed and reproduced. So as well as looking at issues around innocent and guilty victims, it's looking at expanding the notion of a hierarchy of victimhood, around looking at how blame calibrates what we understand victimhood to be, what about silence, both in terms of those who choose to stay silent and why do they choose to stay silent on their experiences in the past, but also silenced forms of victimhood? Say, for example, in Northern Ireland, Republicans tend to silence victimhood within their own community, particularly the victimhood of informers and their own families or sexual violence that has taken place within the Republican community. But it's also, um, and this is effectively leading into potentially what will be future research projects, an exploration of how victimhood intersects with the physical landscape. Um, and I'm particularly interested in sort of the intersection of what we would see as, or some people would term dark terrorism, and the idea of places being haunted by the past. And so how is victimhood played out in the physical landscape around us here in Belfast? Who is represented in a, a wall mural in a memorial garden and who is not? And who gets to make those choices? So effectively in the book, what I'm arguing is the construction and reproduction of victimhood. It needs to go beyond innocence and guilt to bring all of these multiple different factors in. Sounds fascinating. It, it, as you describe your work, it strikes me that you're studying grim things most of the time. What's the cumulative effect of that on the researcher? It's a really good question. And I certainly have, um, for whatever reason, been attracted to the darker side of life. Um, and that was certainly something that was has been brought home to me very early in my academic career, even as I was doing fieldwork as an undergraduate and a, and a master's student. So well before I did my PhD and that made me really think about my own identity and my own positionality in relation to the society that I live in and the people that were affording me a piece of their day to do an interview with me. Um, and in another guise, it was really starkly illustrated when I did some work a couple of years ago in Cambodia. Um, and I spent a considerable amount of time in Cambodia in former sites of uh, torture sites and detention sites, but also in and around mass graves where there's physical human remains in, in multiple different forms in very close proximity. Um, and that was difficult in another way because then you had that sense of, well, I'm a a Western researcher going to look at these mass graves. And then at the end of the day, I'm walking back into a beautiful hotel and I can effectively park that. But for the people that I'm interviewing and I'm working with, that is the lived reality. And, you know, I really felt in Cambodia, well, I could fly home and I could leave this behind. But how did that sit? 
And what was the ethics in the broader sense of, of doing research like that? And so from the start of my career, I have been really clear about wanting to give something back to the communities that I work in. So whether that is accessible research reports, as we did in Cambodia, we translated them into Khmer around using these sites of dark tourism and how much victims and survivors really felt their voices were represented in these sites and what could be done to make them more victim and survivor centred. Or in Northern Ireland, where I think to some extent, you know, we're all affected by the grimness of the conflict here, even if we don't realise it. Certainly, and this is rather personal, but I remember as a child, I'd be eating breakfast in the morning and the radio would always be on in the kitchen. And you'd hear like the death toll from the night before. And I didn't know that that wasn't normal uh, because that's just how it was. So one of the things that I've done in recent years about learning, when I've learned from victims and survivors who I've worked with just about how much, for example, the impact of the media has on their daily reality has been to create a set of guidelines for victims and survivors and for journalists and editors around promoting better practices in the media. And that is that very simple thing that if you're going to use a photograph of a family member, make sure you give them advance warning before they turn on the television or they open the newspaper and that's glaring out at them or don't touch personal possessions in the house. So I think my way, in short, <laughs> of trying to deal with some of these issues has been to try to do something practical and something that was useful and it wasn't a case of, of dropping in and disappearing off with my research data. Cheryl, it's been really fascinating hearing you talk about your important wide-ranging and original research. I think it reflects just what can be done here at Queen's University that Belfast and is done in the School of Law and in the Mitchell Institute for eloquent reflections on important work. I'm very grateful to my guest today, Dr. Cheryl Lawther. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. <laughs>